Join me in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, as I said earlier, it's a good day to preach on Noah in the flood, and we just happened to come to that in the text this morning of Hebrews chapter 11. The ark that Noah built was about 450 feet long, depending on how you measure the Hebrew uh, and the ancient measuring standard of the cubit. It's about 75 foot wide and 45 feet high. Now compare that with the Titanic. The Titanic was almost twice as long at 882 feet, 92 feet wide, and 175 feet high at its highest point. The Titanic uh, was uh, touted as being the unsinkable ship, and all it ever did was sink. The ark accomplished its job. The ark did precisely what it was supposed to do. And by the way, the ark was built by a farmer by the name of Noah. The Titanic was built by professionals. Interesting. Now, someone asked, well, do you believe uh, in a literal interpretation of Genesis 1 through 11 and even Noah and the ark? Do you believe the flood was universal? Uh, do you believe Noah actually got all the animals on? Oh, absolutely. Of course I do. I don't have time to unpack that today, but uh, I do believe Jesus took Genesis 1 through 11 literally, and I believe we should as well. And I would just simply point you to three authors and three references. One would be um, Jonathan Sarfati uh, in his book, The Genesis Account, and then um, uh, Henry Morris, whose last academic post was Virginia Tech, uh, his book, The Genesis Flood, and then Kurt Wise at our own Truett McConnell University and uh, some of his work, Something from Nothing, among other things. But that should uh, help you if you have those kinds of questions. But Jesus took this literally, and so I have no difficulty doing so uh, myself. But in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, we find that against all odds, Noah built the ark, an ark of safety for his family. Beginning there in verse 7, By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Against all odds, we can live by faith. Now let me say, if you're um, not a member of Beach Haven today or you've not come to Christ in the Christian faith, let me say that today I'm going to engage in some insider talk with uh, those who follow Christ and are interested in following hard after Him. I hope the whole world will consider that. And there is a portion of our service at different points every Sunday that's dedicated to inviting people to come to Christ. And we'll do that today. We don't hover over or harass people, but we do make it available because God loves the entire world. And Jesus died for you, and He wants you to come to Him. But this morning, I'm going to do some insider talk uh, almost exclusively to uh, believers and invite them to walk with God by faith. And the thing that we've got to understand is that God blesses the kind of faith that totally abandons itself, uh, the person, to God and His will. God is not interested in blessing anything that we've decided to do and we simply add God on as an appendage. In other words, there are some that decide they're going to live a certain life and they expect God to come bless it. They didn't consult Him about it. 
uh, whether it's vocation or majors in school, whether it happens to be marriage partner, whether it happens to be spending, whether it happens to be where they're living. They don't pray about their homes. They don't pray about their vehicle purchases. They don't pray about their priorities. They don't pray about their kids' lives. They don't pray about uh, their kids' involvements. They don't pray about their kids' education. None of that. They have just decided they're going to live the way they want to live, which is pretty typical and copycat of most middle-class people. And then they call on God and expect Him to bless what they've already decided to do, apart from him. And I I need to let you know, God has no interest in that. What we do is that we take all of that and set it aside and we come before God and we say, God, how do you want me to go about these things? What do you want me to do? And then you, you don't ask God to bless what you're doing. What you do is that you do what God is blessing. And that is his will. And that's precisely what Noah did. And there's some lessons about walking in that kind of faith that we find here in this text. And the first is this, faith performs the seemingly absurd. Faith performs the seemingly absurd. And I've driven people in my family and my friends and ministry colleagues absolutely crazy during the years. And I must admit, I've enjoyed every bit of it because when I have changed churches uh, before going into denominational work up until uh, 2002, I always left a larger church and went to a smaller church. When I went from Texas to South Carolina, I was going to a church about half the size. When I went from uh, South Carolina, and we grew there, and when I went from South Carolina to North Carolina, I went to a church about the third the size of that. And then we doubled there, and then I went from there to a church in Alabama that was, uh, goodness, maybe half the size, maybe 60 or 70 percent that size. In other words, I didn't do what a lot of people do. I didn't climb a denominational ladder, and I never went to a church that other people wanted till coming here to Beach Haven. And, and the reason is, is because of stories like this in verse number seven. You, you, you don't do what people think is the typical thing that you do. Sometimes you will, but you don't do it because you're copying other people with their lives. You do it because it's the will of God. That's what we do. We zero in on the will of God. We don't ask God to bless what we're doing. We do what God is blessing, and that is His will. And that's what Noah does here, even though it appears wildly absurd to the world. Now, I want you to consider several things of how it appeared absurd. It's absurd historically. We don't know of anyone in the ancient world that ever built an ark like he did. There's no history for this. This is a first-time event. And then meteorologically. It's absurd. I can imagine a reporter coming up to Noah and saying, Noah, what are you doing? He said, I'm building an ark. He said, how come? Out in the middle of nowhere? Yes, why? He said, because there's going to be a flood. What's a flood? Well, I've never seen one before. So he goes to the local meteorology department of the university and says, what's a flood? Have we ever had one before? Oh, no, we've never had a flood before. It's impossible. He's nuts. He's lost his mind. You see, Genesis, 6, uh, Genesis chapter 2 says, God watered the earth from a mist of the ground. We're not even certain there had ever been rain before. Now, there had been plenty of moisture to water the earth, but uh, we, we're, we're not even sure that that had happened up to this point. And um, as far as a flood is concerned, we, 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 we're not aware of any floods that had taken place before. And you have to understand, Noah uh, has got an unusual geography, which I will mention in just a moment. Financially, Noah had to finance this thing himself, and there are no ancient banks. Uh, Then, vocationally, Noah apparently had to leave farming and give 12 decades to building this thing, the biblical text says. Geographically, it's absurd as well. And this um, 
uh, lapel mic's getting a bit absurd as well. But uh, geographically, it's absurd. Noah is not any, near any large bodies of water. He is 500 miles inland, and there's not a body of water large enough to float this ark. Uh, culturally, it's absurd. Uh, in his day, in his day, uh, people were living constant lives of wickedness and evil. That's why God was going to send the flood. Genesis 6-5 is rather poetic and tragic at the same time. The imagination of their hearts was only evil continually, the text says. Chronologically, as far as time is concerned, it was absurd. He had to spend 120 years building this ark. And you say, well, do you believe they actually lived that long? Well, that's really not the question. The question is, why don't we? And then socially, it is absurd. Noah had to isolate himself from others, and Noah became the joke of the county. Now listen to me. His ark building appeared absurd before the flood. But after the flood, it was the smartest thing a man could do. And some of you, God is speaking to your heart and drawing you and directing you in certain ways with your life and with your decisions. And it appears, it appears that you're looking at making an absurd decision. But remember, that's before the decision. After the decision, it may make all the sense in the world. But you see, you don't see that, and others do not see that either at all. God does. And therefore, God moves you in his will. And oftentimes, that's just how it is with God. God rarely shows the end at the beginning. He doesn't have to. He doesn't need to. He is worthy of trust, though we cannot see the end at the beginning. In fact, following the will of God is an awful lot like walking through the woods at night with a flashlight. Deep, thick, dark woods with nothing but a flashlight. And you know what that means? That means you have just enough light to take the next step or two, but not enough light to shine all the way through the forest. You can't see the end at the beginning, but you can walk with God. And so today, God is moving on your heart to decide for Him, to decide for His Son, Jesus Christ. And so when we come to Him, you have to understand, when we follow Jesus, we have but one posture, and that is everything in His will is my only option, even the absurdities. Anything less may qualify as religious. And you have to understand, religious people and religious organizations and human hearts that are inclined towards religion will always develop substitutes for the will of God. Not everything religious is necessarily approved by God because it can distract very subtly away from following Him. And so we don't take any comfort in our baptism or the Lord's Supper, our spiritual heritage, our church attendance. Our faith is in God and God alone as He defines it. So whatever God wants for my vocation is my only option. Whatever God wants for my habits is my only option. Uh, whatever God wants for my entertainments is my only option. Whatever God wants for my relationships is my only option. Whatever God wants for the mission and purpose of my life is my only option. Whatever God wants for the renovation of worship centers is my only 
option. Whatever God wants for my worship is my only option. Whatever God wants for my beliefs as defined by his word is my only option. Whatever God wants for my values is my only option. Whatever God wants for me about my evaluation of social and popular movements is my only option. Whatever God wants for my spending is my only option. Whatever God wants me to do during our invitation after the message is my only option. I have no other. And that's our heart. That's what we hope will happen. Because after I preach today, we'll sing a song and we invite people to turn to Jesus Christ and we offer them help at the front of the worship center during that time. And during that time, why don't you say to God, God, what you want me to do during that invitation is my only option. I have no other. And then you meet a staff member here at front and say, I need someone to pray with me. And you come and you embrace everything God wants you to embrace. So faith performs the seemingly absurd. But no one teaches us the second thing, and that is faith rests upon some solid basis. Now, you don't merely, to follow God, you don't merely go out and simply do the absurd. That, that's not the point. The point is to follow Him, not to be weird. And let's not add to that list. We got plenty in churches that seem to have mastered that. Would you agree with me? Can I get a witness? Oh, yeah. We don't need any more of that. You don't merely select the most absurd, weird, spiritual, religious thing and go do it. That's not what I'm saying here. And please don't hear me say that. You do the will of God, but you've got to have some guidance in doing it. You need to make sure that you're doing the will of God. And verse 7 will tell you something about that. There's a solid basis to this. By faith, Noah, and here comes a participle, being divinely warned of things not seen, and another participle, mood with godly fear, prepared an ark. Now this sentence is, by faith Noah prepared an ark. And between those two phrases are a couple of participles that um, explain the circumstances under which he built the ark. The first one was, and, and they're in reverse order here, Noah had a fear, a godly fear of God. Not a phobia, not as if he rounded a corner and found a rabid dog coming after him. Not that kind of fear. But it's the kind of fear where you come before God and you're simply amazed at him. You're awed by him. Um, the uh, Christian Standard Version, the uh, one that Lifeway has produced recently, uh, does a good job translating this oftentimes in the Psalms and in the uh, New Testament even. And, and so we stand in awe of God. That's what biblical uh, fear is when it talks about being in fear of the Lord. In other words, you're not casual, you're not careless, you're not nonchalant before God. You're really amazed by Him. And when we sing His songs and when we meet Him in prayer, when we hear His Word, it grips us. It does something to us. We're amazed by Him. We, we, we can hardly speak sometimes. Um, at, at times we get tore up inside over how, how amazing and extensive is, is His love. How, how unfailing is his faithfulness? How real and revel, re relevant are his promises? How, how timely his answers to prayer? In other words, we're never ho-hum with him. We're never bored with him. We are amazed and in awe of God. And Noah had that before God. And because he did, he listened to him. He listened to God. And, and so that's the point here of uh, verse number 7. Noah built the ark. Because God directed him to, and Noah heard God's direction. Noah got a word from God about this global event because he was in fear of God. Psalms 25 verse 14 says, The secret 
of the Lord is with those who fear him. Those who are amazed with God, not casual, indifferent, bored with him, nonchalant, but those that are moved by all the things of God, they are the ones that get in on the secrets of God. And Noah did. He had a solid basis for his decision. A.W. Tozer wrote a book a number of years ago entitled, God Tell, using the generic he, God Tells the Man Who Cares. And he wrote this, The Bible was written in tears, and to tears it will yield its best treasures. God has nothing to say to the frivolous man, to the reckless, to the careless, to the casual, to the indifferent. Even those that look to the Bible, God has nothing to say. But to the one who will come before God with a zeal, with a heart, with a passion, with with fire in his soul, amazed at God, God unveils his secrets to those who come before him. So God provides a word to those who stand in awe of him. The casual will not get it, but the intense and submissive always will. So before you decide on what you need to do, even before you speak up, please stand in awe of God first and get a word from him. For example, some have said, I'll never go to Africa. Did you get a word from God about that? I'll never give. Did you get a word from God about that? I'll never go door to door to tell people about Jesus. Did you get a word from God about that? I'll never worship with an organ or pews or chandeliers. Did you get a word from God about that? I'll never worship without organs, pews, and chandeliers. Did you get a word from God about that? I can never worship in a traditional building. Did you get a word from God about that? I can never worship in a warehouse. Did you get a word from God about that? I would never participate in a Sunday school class or a mission project. Did you get a word from God about that? I I, I could never forgive that person. Did you get a word from God about that? I'd never put up with that. Did you get a word from God about that? I'll never go to seminary. Did you get a word from God about that? I'll never be baptized by immersion as a believer. Did you get a word from God about that? I'll never get up earlier to seek God in the word and prayer. Did you get a word from God about that? I will never raise my child or educate my child that way. Did you get a word from God about that? Please, oh please, before you ever speak up or decide, stand in awe of God and get a word from him and he'll come through every time. So let me say, in case any of us are confused, Jesus Christ is the Lord. We are the servants. Jesus Christ is God. We are the humans. And the key to life is to realize there's only one God and we aren't him. Those two facts will get us started and started Well, so when we come to Christ, we're done with saying, I'll never do that. And we begin to say, I shall ever do His will. Coming to Christ means we lose all our rights to tell Him no and to make decisions independently of Him. And so, after the message, when we extend the invitation, you've got to understand, that is the most critical and important time during the service. Because that's when we say yes to him and bow everything before him if we haven't done it already. Well, there's a third lesson from Noah about faith. And that is faith 
produces the eternally significant. And there are three things mentioned in verse number seven. And let's just read the verse over again. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Three things that were eternally significant here to Noah. One is Noah's family. Noah was the father of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. It was through Shem that would come the children of promise and the line of promise God had promised in Genesis 3.15 in the garden when he made those promises to Adam and Eve when they fell. And through Shem, uh, eventually came Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and uh, then eventually uh, Judah, and then uh, the line of David, and then eventually Jesus Christ. Very, very significant. So what we have here is that by building the ark, Noah ends up providing salvation to the world and to his own household. The ark saved him and his family. No one else trusted the Lord. They were all wiped out in the flood. And so Noah saved his family. I, I do believe the Bible teaches household salvation. And this was uh, best illustrated by the Billy Graham organization a number of years ago when they did research on converts. And they found that when a child is the first one to come to faith in Christ in a family, the rest of the family will follow about three, three and a half percent of the time. When a mom is the first one to come to Christ in the family, it gets better. About 17% of the time will the rest of the family come. But then Graham shocked the whole world when he said that when the father is the first one to come to Christ in the family, the rest of the family will follow 93% of the time. I, I, I don't know what it is, and I don't know if I can explain it, but families and children appear to be hardwired to follow the faith of a father. Now, if your father didn't have faith in Christ and your mother did, don't mean to denigrate that and don't, don't read that into what I'm saying. Thank God for anyone who comes to Christ uh, and uh, places faith in him. But what this underscores is that it's terribly important for dads to follow the example of Noah. And it's also terribly, terribly important when singles are uh, praying through and thinking through who they will marry one day. You've got to understand Fellas, when you are dating and when you are contemplating marriage, you're not only looking for a wife, you're looking for a mother of your children. And whenever you are looking for a fellow, ladies, then you're not only looking for a husband, you're looking for the father of your children, and you better shoot high. You've got to. This was significant for Noah's family. You've got to have enough faith to follow his example. But then it was significant for Noah's world. It says, by this he condemned or indicted the world. Noah stands as a stark reminder that despite all the social opposition, all the jokes made about him, like how many of Noah's children does it take to change, you know, you can just imagine all that. Despite being a joke of the country and the county, uh, he still showed and demonstrated you can take a firm stand for God and though you may not have the approval of the world, by faith you can have the approval of God and ultimately that's what matters. Noah's world. So by doing that, he indicted the world. And Peter will say in 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, that through Noah, the spirit of Christ was preaching 
to them. Jesus does that through preachers today. We're not worthy of it, but he loves you. Now, don't be too impressed if you're a preacher. I mean, he spoke through a donkey. Okay? But he communicates through humans the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. So it was significant for Noah's family and his world. And the sign that God is working on you today and drawing you to himself is that there is someone here telling you the good news of Jesus Christ. How though we're sinners and we violated God's law and we're worthy of condemnation and hell, God loves us. He wasn't satisfied with that. So Jesus went to the cross and he died there in execution that we were to suffer because the wages of sin is death. And God approved of that and raised him from the dead. And now anyone who will repent and believe the gospel can be eternally secure in him. And that's what we invite you to today. So it was important or significant for Noah's family and Noah's world, but also Noah's soul. Did you look at the end of verse number seven? He became an heir. He received an inheritance. And the inheritance here is defined as righteousness, which doesn't come by virtue. It comes by faith. Remember when I was in um, seminary the second time, my, my grandfather, my step-grandfather passed away. And he had done well in insurance and real estate through the years. And there was uh, something left for us in that. And at that time, we had a pretty high stack of medical bills. And we paid those off with, uh, with that. We were very, very grateful. But it's interesting. My grandfather did all the work. We received the benefit. That's what an inheritance is. And God is willing to give this wealthy thing, this rich thing, this rare thing, of a right standing with him to anyone who comes to him by faith. Because Jesus does the work at the cross and resurrection of satisfying God. And you receive the free benefit. You inherit the free benefit by entrusting yourself to him. And that's what Noah has here. So the degree to which you trust God will be the degree to which you impact eternity and do something significant in eternity. Now when Noah was building this ark, when Noah was building this ark, uh, God gave him some specific instructions on how to do so. They're measurable, they're defined. Uh, in fact, this ark has been rebuilt in Kentucky and is now an amusement park of sorts. And that's what Noah built. And uh, he listened to God and he and his family were saved. And now the world has Jesus Christ and salvation and the free gift of righteousness. Uh, part of the instructions of building the ark was to cover it inside and out with a thing called pitch. Now, some critics of the Bible say, well, pitch is made from petroleum. They couldn't extract it from the earth. Well, uh, a lot of pitch is made from petroleum, but in Europe years ago, pitch was made from pine resin mixed with charcoal. So there's several ways to make pitch, and it's entirely possible that Noah had some kind of ancient recipe for pitch. Apparently did because he used it. And he covered the ark inside and out with pitch. This uh, pitch functioned in two ways. One, it waterproofed the ark so that water couldn't get in. But research has been done on pitch and found that uh, with impact, 
Some forms of pitch can, predict, can, can prevent damage to an object, whether it be a wall or whether it be something like a boat or an ark. And that's what, well, you've got bed liners and trucks. Well, that's oftentimes what you have here. Noah covered the ark inside and out with pitch to waterproof it and to prevent damage from impact. And you can imagine the impact that could come upon the ark in a great, large, universal flood. Who knows what's floating and the kind of impact that would be made on the exterior of the ark. It's very interesting, the word pitch. The word pitch is the Hebrew word kafar, and it served to waterproof and to uh, give impact resistance. It is the same word translated in the Old Testament many times, frequently, in fact, atone or atonement. The priest would offer up the offering, and it would cover the sins of the people, at least for the next year, until they could offer it up again. The death of Jesus Christ is oftentimes called the atonement. When Jesus Christ died at the cross, he atoned for human sin. He covers sin out of the view of God so that sinners who trust him can stand before God in a right relationship with him. Proverbs 16, verse number 6 says, By mercy and truth, atonement is made for iniquity. Kafar is made for iniquity. And the good news is, is that we don't bring our own sacrifices to God to cover or to pitch or atone for our sins. God has offered up the final and perfect sacrifice himself. And he offered it in Jesus Christ and because Jesus died and rose again, Jesus does more than merely cover our sins. John looked at him when he appeared on the scene and said, What? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is not only in the business of covering up and covering over our sin before God. Jesus, in our guilt, Jesus is in the business of removing it eternally from the sight of God. And it is possible today for sinners by faith in Christ to stand before God pure and clean as if there was no guilt and no condemnation, no indictment leveled against them by a God who knows everything. Jesus Christ then is your ark of safety. And by faith, you can have him today. If you're willing to reject a life and a righteousness outside of Christ, where you earn it yourself, if you'll reject that, the Bible calls that repentance. And if you will embrace and entrust Jesus Christ alone, God promises he will save. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, is what the scripture says. And I want us to pray about it. And after we pray, we'll sing. And we'll invite you to meet a staff member here to pray about it and to come to Christ or make your decision today.